This is Her Machine. Her Machine 52. Das ist die Her Machine 52. Welcome to the Flickering Land. Ja, herzlich willkommen im Flimmerland. It's an empire. It is our world. Yeah, this is a ganzes Reich, empire. Es ist das Flimmerland. Es ist unsere Welt.
Hey, Thomas. Hey, Thomas. Sagt Inge. Inge says. Thomas, wollen wir heute nicht einfach mal ausgehen? Thomas, don't we wanna have a night out today, tonight? Thomas schaut Inge verdutzt an. Thomas looks baffled at Inge. Dann sagt er ja. Thomas says yes. Inge freut sich. Inge is glad. Thomas freut sich, weil sich Inge freut. Thomas is glad because Inge is glad. Und nach zwei Stunden sind sie soweit. And after two hours they are ready. Inge und Thomas gehen aus. Inge und Thomas have a night out. Sie gehen einfach aus dem Haus und they just leave the house. Werfen sich and get themselves in die warme Nacht. Into the warm night. An der Ecke bleibt Inge stehen und sagt Thomas. At the corner Inge stops and Thomas says bleibt auch stehen. Thomas. Thomas stops as well. Inge sagt Thomas. Inge says Thomas. Wo wollen wir eigentlich überhaupt hin? Where we wanna go at all? Thomas überlegt kurz und sagt. Thomas is thinking for a moment and says. Weiß gar nicht. I don't know actually. Nach einer langen Pause sagt Inge. After long break. Inge says, wenn ich nicht immer Pläne hätte, if I wouldn't have any time plans, let's follow them to flickering land. Gehen wir mit ihnen. Flimmerland. Sie. Mm. Köstlich. Ah. Fruchtig. Ja. Koste mal. Mm. 
köstlich. Ah. Fruchtig. Ja. Kosten Sie. No matter what shape your stomach's in. shape your stomach's in. When it gets out of shape, take Alka-Seltzer. Alka-Seltzer relieves the flutters, calms the nervous feeling, relieves heartburn, relieves the stuffy feeling, and relieves a headache. Better than any other antacid. Better than anything you can get without a prescription. Anything. Alka-Seltzer. It's the best. tell us. Their god, Glooskap, came to live among them in Acadia, now Nova Scotia. 
Moose Cap made his home on Cape Blavidon, overlooking the Basin of Minas. During those distant days, the benevolent god of the Micmacs wrought many marvels in their land. Mysteriously, out of the west, Glooskap came to Acadia, the land of the sunrise, to his Micmac people, the children of light. Though Glooskap dwelt nearby on Blomidon, the Micmacs did not see their god, but they felt his presence everywhere. was the wind. As he turned, so the wind blew. His anger was the thunder. And the raging waves. His pleasure was the sunlight that warmed the sea and the land. and forests below. He opened to them the wild plant sorcery of dyes and medicines. But Glooskap's private herb garden lay across Fundy Bay near the shores of Advocate and there he set out feasts for his children of light. On Cape Blomidon, Nugami, his grandmother, and Martin, his servant, looked after Glooskap's needs. As they quenched their campfires, mists rose from the Fundy Seas. 
two loons were Glooskap's faithful messengers. In those wonderful days of long ago, he counted all animals as his friends. Then one day, his messenger, Tatler, brought word that Bullfrog, lord of all freshwater streams, had grown jealous of Glooskap's sovereignty. Bullfrog willed that all the streams from which the Micmac people drew their water should run dry. shook the heavens. Rain fell. Streams flowed again. Then Glooskap punished Bullfrog. And Bullfrog, his back crumpled by Glooskap's hand, lives to this day in muddy waters and croaks from a dry throat. Then Beaver became insolent and mischievous and taunted Glooskap's people. Again, Glooskap's voice rose with the wind. clods of earth at Beaver, and five islands rose from the sea. The islands took on grotesque, beautiful shapes, and seabirds claimed them for their own. shore. But Beaver, the troublemaker, retreated down the bay and built a monstrous dam. Trapped by the dam, 
the water crept over the land and filled and overflowed the basin of Minas, drowning the homes of Gluskap's people. In fury, Gluskap gathered all his power to break the dam. into the bay. The swirling waters sculptured its base, and towering pinnacles were shaped. Such was the magic of Glooskap's hand. On the rocky shores, Glooskap scattered glowing jewels for Nugami, his grandmother, Jasper, Agate, Onyx, Chalcedony, and Amethyst. Amethyst, the eye of Glooskap. The amethyst, by some strange sorcery, always finds its way back, they say, to the dark face of Blomidon. Time passed. Glooskap became old and tired, and the waters of his bay were as gray as his mood. Behind him, the hardwoods had turned their leaves to red and to gold. As the bright leaves fluttered to the ground, Glooskap waved his magic wand, and they became birds. For the first time, his Micmac people saw the beauty and heard the song of land birds. Elsewhere, all around him, Glooskap saw nature dying, and he was sad and heavy in spirit. He looked over the somber waters, and as shadows darkened the sunlit beaches, he heard from afar his messengers warn of the coming of the pale-faced warriors. Saddened, he called his people to a final feast at their gathering place on the shore. The feast over, he threw his tea kettle into the sea, where upturning, it became an island. And to this day, the tea leaves from Glooskap's kettle wash up on the lonely beaches. As the evening closed in, Glooskap spoke to his children of light. He said he must leave them, but that one day he would come again. 
Wistfully, he looked over the water and at the magic and mighty works of his hand that had made the Micmac land most beautiful. Then, as the tide turned and the sinking sun sent its rays shimmering over the sea, Glooskap set sail for the land of his fathers. But when the wind whistles and the thunder rolls, the Micmac people hear the voice of Glooskap, their god, and know in their hearts that someday he will return to the land of the sunrise. forces hidden deep inside the minds of all human beings. Forces which have not controlled led individuals and societies to chaos and destruction. Suchen ist ein finanzielles Risiko. Es ist harte Arbeit, Mut, Entschlossenheit und eine Menge Geld sind erforderlich. Doch wir brauchen das Öl und das Erdgas für unsere Zukunft. Es gibt viel zu tun. Packen wir es an. you've never entered. People you've never seen. The girl is just as much a part of your city as the neighbor's girl you wave to on your way to work every morning. Of course, if you saw her as often as you see your neighbor's girl, if you knew she had pneumonia, 
you'd want to help her get the medical care she needs. But with only one pair of eyes, you can't see all the sick little girls in your city. Nor can you see the woman who lives alone, no longer cared for, no longer caring. She is your neighbor too. And if you knew about her and about all the others also alone, you'd try to help. But with only one pair of eyes, you can't see the whole city. When so many people live so close together, no one can know them all. No one can know all the families that need help, where the mother can't work because her children are too young, where a child is mentally retarded, where life seems hopeless and friendless with no place to turn. Of course, you'd try to help this family, and the one down the street, and the one in the next block, if you knew, and if you knew how. And if you knew who needs help first, who needs help the most, and if you had what they need to give them. If you knew how many youngsters in your city roam the streets in restless, destructive gangs, of course you'd help organize better activities for them. But you have your office or your shop. You can't be out all day looking for boys who have nothing to do or finding places for neighborhood centers like to help, but with only one pair of eyes, one pair of hands, in such a big city. If you could see the people whose lives are suddenly disrupted by unpredictable disaster, naturally, you'd want to help them any way you could. We interrupt this program for a special announcement. Tornado warnings have been issued for the moment of disaster. How could you be ready? How could you be there? to search the dingy, unfamiliar corners of your city and see the needs there. If you had 122 special kinds of training and skill, if you had playgrounds and x-ray machines, if you had piles of clothing and stacks of food, if you had a tower from which you could see all the streets into all the corners of your city at once in perfect detail, you do what you do now with your gift to the United Fund. The 122 agencies which you support through the United Fund are your 122 eyes to see the needs of your neighbors, to weigh them and to recognize where to help most, where to help first. That's why you help the most when you give your most to the United Fund. In time of disaster, you have the emergency crews of the Red Cross trained and equipped to give your neighbors the help you'd want to give them until their life gets back to normal. Alerted by automatic communication systems, this help is ready always because you give to the United Fund.
The 122 agencies you support through the United Fund know the whole city, know where recreational programs are most needed, know how to set them up and operate them effectively. With the 122 eyes of the United Fund, you are able to see all the needs of your city, and you have the equipment and skills to meet such needs as those of the retarded child. With your 122 eyes, you know where help is needed and what kind of help is best for a child and best for her mother. You have the eyes to see into lonely forgotten rooms and friendly hands to lead the aged into better care and a new sense of belonging. Because you give to the United Fund, you have eyes to see the little girl with pneumonia and modern facilities to cure her. You have 122 eyes to see the needs, 122 skilled hands to help, the way you want to help, because they are your neighbors, because it is your city. We know you want to support the United Fund because you've given so generously in the past. With such a big city, with so many needs, this one gift to support 122 agencies is the most effective and the most sensible way of giving your neighbors the help you'd want to give them, if you only knew, and if you knew how. With 122 eyes to see your city's needs and to put the first ones first, and with 122 special skills to take care of these needs, you help the most when you give your most to the United Fund. You help the most when you give your most to the United Fund. But for many, the question remains, how much? Ultimately, of course, you're the only one who can answer that. But when you're thinking of your pledge for the year, won't you give at least one hour's pay each month? Out of each month's income, one hour's pay is little enough to support all the services that 122 agencies perform in your name. Give one hour's pay each month this year. Because you help the most when you give your most to the United Fund. Believe it or not, we have over a mile of inspectors at the Volkswagen factory. More than 7,000 men who have only one job, to keep an eye on the way Volkswagens are made. And there's no nonsense about them. They reject a Volkswagen, or part of a Volkswagen, for little things you might never even see. And when one of our inspectors says no, it's no. That's why you'll never find so much as a blob of paint or a stitch out of place on a new Volkswagen. An inspector finds it first. Frankly, not every car we make makes it. But any car that gets to the end of that long line of inspectors is a Volkswagen.
surprise, they asked me to go over with, with Woodrow Wilson to the peace conference. And at the age of 1926, I was in Paris for the entire time of the peace conference that was held in the suburb of Paris, and we worked to make the world safe for democracy. That was a big slogan. information drives behavior. And so Eddie began to formulate this idea that you had to look at things that would play to people's irrational emotions. And you see, that moved Eddie immediately into a different category from other people in his field and most government officials and managers of the day who thought if you just hit people with all this factual information, they would look at that and say, oh, of course. And Eddie knew that was not the way the world works. taboo against women smoking in public. Can you do anything about that? I said, let me think about it. And then I said, have I your permission to see a psychoanalyst to find out what cigarettes mean to women? He said, what'll it cost? So I called up Dr. Brill 
A.A. Brill, who was a leading psychoanalyst in New York at that time. How come you didn't call your uncle? Why didn't you call your uncle? Because he was in Vienna. A.A. Brill was one of the first psychoanalysts in America. And for a large fee, he told Bernays that cigarettes were a symbol of the penis and of male sexual power. He told Bernays that if he could find a way to connect cigarettes with the idea of challenging male power, then women would smoke, because then they would have their own penises. Every year, New York held an Easter Day parade to which thousands came. And Bernays decided to stage an event there. He persuaded a group of rich debutantes to hide cigarettes under their clothes. Then, they should join the parade, and at a given signal from him, they were to light up the cigarettes dramatically. Bernays then informed the press that he had heard that a group of suffragettes were preparing to protest by lighting up what they called torches of freedom. He knew this would be an outcry, and he knew that all of the photographers would be there to capture this moment. And so he was ready with a phrase, which was torches of freedom. And so here you have a symbol, women, young women, debutantes, smoking a cigarette in public with a phrase that means anybody who believes in this kind of equality pretty much has to support them in the ensuing debate about this, because torches of freedom. I mean, what's on all American coins? It's liberty. She's holding up the torch, you see? And so all of this is there together. There's emotion, there's memory, there's a rational phrase, even though it's using a lot of emotional elements. It's a, it's a phrase that works in a rational sense. All of this is together. And so the next day, this was not just in all of the New York papers, it was across the United States and around the world. And from that point forward, uh, the sale of cigarettes to women began to rise. He had made them socially acceptable with a single symbolic act. Nach einer langen Pause sagt Inge, If I wouldn't have any time plans, wenn ich nicht immer Pläne hätte, let's follow them to flickering land. Gehen wir mit ihnen ins Flimmerland. had created was the idea that if a woman smoked, it made her more powerful and independent. An idea that still persists today. Embrace me, my sweet embrace. Made him realize that it was possible to persuade people to behave irrationally if you link products to their emotional desires and feelings. The idea that smoking actually made women freer was completely irrational but it made them feel independent. It meant that irrelevant objects could become powerful emotional symbols of how you wanted to be seen by others. Eddie Bernays saw the way to sell product was not to sell it to your intellect that you ought to buy an automobile, but that you will feel better about it if you have this automobile. I think he originated that idea, that they weren't just purchasing something, but they were engaging themselves, emotionally or personally, in, in the product or service. That it's not, you, you think you need 
a new piece of clothing, but you'll feel better with the piece of clothing. That was his contribution in a very real sense. We see it all over the place today, but I think he originated the idea of the emotional connect to a product or service. What Bernays was doing fascinated America's corporations. They had come out of the war rich and powerful, but they had a growing worry. The system of mass production had flourished during the war, and now millions of goods were pouring off production lines. What they were frightened of was the danger of overproduction, that there would come a point when people had enough goods and would simply stop buying. Up until that point, the majority of products were still sold to the masses on the basis of need. While the rich had long been used to luxury goods, for the millions of working-class Americans, most products were still advertised as necessities. Goods like shoes, stockings, even cars, were promoted in functional terms for their durability. The aim of the advertisements was simply to show people the product's practical virtues, nothing more. What the corporations realized they had to do was transform the way the majority of Americans thought about products. One leading Wall Street banker, Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers, was clear about what was necessary. We must shift America, he wrote, from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs.
Over centuries, systems have been subtly modified, manipulated, and even corrupted, often to serve the interests of the few. We have continually accepted these changes, and because man can adjust to living under virtually any conditions, the trait that's enabled us to survive is the very trait that has suppressed us. Most societies have an elite, and elite tries to stay in power. And the ways they stay in power is not merely by controlling the means of production to be Marxist, i.e. controlling the money, but by controlling the cognitive map, the way we think. And what really matters in that respect is not so much what is actually said in public, but is what is left undebated, unsaid. At the end of World War II, we had 50% of the world's gross domestic product. We were making 54,000 airplanes a year, 7,000 ships, etc., etc. And we were the new Rome. And we recognized it and devised a power management scheme in the 1947 National Security Act to, we thought, manage it. And it worked fairly well during the Cold War. But we haven't done anything since, and I think that's another sign of our uh, inability to grasp the new world, if you will. Where things were so great, we have this last oomph of momentum that we used to be great, and we felt great, and we don't feel it anymore. So everyone is out searching for it. Well, maybe it's in the best food, or the best clothes, or the best music, or the best movies, or a reality TV show, or another magazine. But you can never get enough of what you don't need. What you need is a strong moral conviction that is pervasive throughout the society, and integrity reigns. There's a vast apathy. There's a vast amoralism even a political nature to it. That is to say, there are vast numbers of people who don't give a damn. And so there's this, this uh, natural, I suppose, entropy. Any living organism, which an empire is, of course, um, over time dies. Um, question is, how does it die? Does it die in a violent cascade of events, or does it die over a long period of time? Human beings are complex creatures. I mean, for example, we're capable right now, at this minute, of uh, acting in such a way as to make it likely, if not certain, that our grandchildren are going to face terrible disasters. And we're consciously acting to accelerate that likelihood, even though we all love our grandchildren. How can you be more contradictory than that? In spite of all the um, economic activities of last uh, uh, 50, 60, 70 years since the world, Second World War and all the industrialization, uh, we have not yet managed to solve the problem of poverty, deprivation, hunger, malnutrition. Um, millions of people every night go to bed without food. And uh, millions of people are throwing away their food. Waste on the one hand, and poverty and deprivation and hunger on the other hand. Uh, uh, malnutrition on the one hand, and obesity on the other hand. What kind of system have we created? Uh, well, I think if the people knew what the banking system is up to, uh, as Henry Ford said, there would be a revolution tomorrow morning. Uh, the fact is most people think that what a bank does is lend you money that someone else has put in the bank previously. Um, but what a bank actually does, what a commercial bank does, 
is to create money from nothing and then lend it to you at interest. If I do that, if I manufacture money in my own home, it's called counterfeiting. Uh, if an accountant creates money out of nothing in the company accounts, it's called cooking the books. But if a bank does it, it's perfectly legal. Uh, and so long as you allow fraud to be legalized, uh, then all kinds of problems are going to pop up in the economic system, which you can't do anything about. Private banks create money out of nothing and lend it at interest. Now, that sounds absurd. Uh, when I teach sophomores, you know, about money and banking and how banks, they never believe it. And so you have to go through it again and again. Yes, banks really do create money. They really do. Here's how it happens. And it's absurd, and they're right to, to uh, doubt that that could possibly be what's really going on. But it is. Now, if the banking lobby is very strong, they're going to say, well, we don't want to change the system. We're making so much money out of it. What we have to do is, A, try and convince the people that it's their fault, um, that their wage claims are too high, and that's why we're having lots of inflation, or people are speculating on housing, and that's why house prices are going up. What they're not going to say is that this is happening because banks are creating money out of nothing and pumping it into the system, and that's why prices are going up. In a triumphalist mode, thinking, ah, you know, our adversary has failed, that means we're doing everything right. Both systems are trying to do something which is fundamentally impossible, grow forever. And they're both going to fail. One failed first. Capitalism's going to fail in, you know, later. Or it's failing now. America right now is in a very interesting position because in the past two, three hundred years of its history, it's a culture and country which has almost always existed on the assumption that resources could be expanded. Um, if there was a problem, you always try to deal with it by expanding the pie. Go west, young man. Make the pie bigger so that everyone's got a bigger piece. Now it's faced in a world where possibly resources are beginning to be more constrained and where it's going to have to divide up that pie and inflict pain on people. And that's something which it is not well prepared for. How has the country moved so far from the intentions of its founding fathers? How has the American dream become so distorted? Over the last 30 or 40 years, capitalism has taken this extreme form. And a lot of it goes back to the economist Milton Friedman from the Chicago School and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and, and others buying into these policies that really encourage people to take on huge amounts of debt, encourage privatization, uh, smaller government supposedly, although bigger militaries, so, so actually the government spending goes up. Deregulation, getting rid of rules that govern the people who run our institutions, especially our corporations. It's as though we suddenly are supposed to believe that the human beings who sit at the top of corporations uh, don't need to be regulated. They're some sort of gods. The uh, Reagan revolution, as we call it in the United States, obviously the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, think about it more globally, was a big change in power structure and a big transfer of opportunity and wealth. Uh, now it wasn't. It's not. It's not that the poor gave it to the rich. It was a transfer within the well-to-do. So the, the financial sector, in particular, in the United States, for example, but also in the UK and some other places, became vastly more profitable, and wages in, in that sector went up a lot. I mean, we focus on bonuses, but it's also base salaries went up. Overall compensation. So there's a transfer from the non-financial part of the economy to the financial part of the economy that actually is unprecedented 
as far as we can see in, in any of the available data to us, and I'm talking about all of recorded human history, Wall Street is, has become a very particular uh, type of casino. Uh, and it's unfortunately not the kind of casino uh, they have in Las Vegas, which is you know perfectly legitimate form of entertainment. Uh, it, it is a casino that has massive negative repercussions on the rest of society. So it's not just losing your money on a few wild nights. It's about the way in which those organizations lose their money, impacting the whole of society, uh, leading to a massive loss of jobs. Uh, we have a system which isn't even a proper capitalist system, uh, which people make mistakes that they don't get punished, that poor people make mistakes that they get punished, yeah? or even worse, that they don't make any mistake and they are forced to yeah, that, uh, pay for the mistakes of the rich. The Goldman Sachs machine is one of using profits to buy influence in Washington to change laws to make it easier to make money on Wall Street to be used to buy influence in Washington. So it's a self-reinforcing malfeasance machine that uh, is continuing to grow as a parasite in the economy and continuing to kill the host. Goldman Sachs are extremely efficient at what they do. Their task is to make money. Uh, they make bank robbers like Willie Sutton look like modest amateurs. Uh, they're huge bank robbers, but it's legal. The system is set up so that they can do it. In the recent years, they've been selling securities put together from mortgages that they knew were worthless. Uh, so they're selling these things to unwitting consumers, making a ton of money on it. Meanwhile, they're betting that they're going to fail because they know that it, what they're peddling is rotten. So they placed bets with the credit default swaps and other things with a huge insurance company, AIG, and that was insuring Goldman Sachs against the failure of the stuff they're peddling. The housing market in the West isn't about ownership. The housing market in the West, because it's the only way ordinary people can get ahead, and ordinary people can't get ahead but by wages, what we've created is a mass bubble economics around housing. So that sucks in a huge amount of capital, takes capital for genuine innovations in the economy, and puts it into a speculative use that has no genuine productive outcome. It's interesting if you talk to people in Germany, for example, they don't see a connection between owning a piece of property and, and being inclined to be, towards being democratic. There's lots of people who rent their housing there and they're perfectly comfortable with that arrangement. But it is true that in somewhat different contexts, both Mr. Reagan and Mrs. Thatcher pushed for more people to own housing. And actually, this is part of the problem, because if you push people to buy housing before they're ready, and if, so if, you, if you push very dubious loans on them, and they don't understand what they get themselves into, you can have huge adverse repercussions, exactly what led to, in part, the subprime housing crisis in the United States. Uh, that's not anything to do with democracy, that's just a bad economic idea. The breakthrough that occurred around the year uh, 2000 in the United States was when bankers found out that the poor are honest. And uh, they realized that if you're poor, if you're not rich, uh, you have a different set of values. And you think that a debt is a debt, and it's something that has to be paid. And the people will try to pay the debts that they're stuck with, even if the debts are not valid, even if the debts uh, are much more than they expected, even if they really can't pay the debts. The lending and banking institutions, uh, when they drew up contracts with interest rates, with flexible interest rates, 
I think they knew in the beginning that these problems were going to come back later on where folks weren't going to be able to afford the mortgages as the interest rates increased. It put a lot of people in situations where they were taking food out of refrigerators, taking kids out of higher education. They're not able to afford college anymore. And it is making a really, really bad situation worse. The banks engaged in what was a criminal conspiracy to charge more to the blacks and Hispanics. The banks got together, backed the Bush administration to block the state prosecutions of uh, racial lending in order to exploit and charge more to the minority. These are loans which were made by one of the major lenders in the city and in this country, Wells Fargo, in which Wells Fargo targeted minority communities in the city, uh, put borrowers into loans that they could not afford, put borrowers into loans um, that, that were of the subprime variety, therefore more expensive and less advantageous to the borrowers. Many of the communities in which African Americans live in the city were establishing momentum. There was development activity that was occurring. We were seeing signs of vitality in many of these communities and the results of the Wells Fargo foreclosures and the subprime lending practices of that lender and others um, has significantly impaired that progress and, and brought it to a halt. They're not worrying about, they don't, they don't come in the heart of it. Like you in the heart of it, so you see, they don't really see the struggle if they don't come in the heart of it, they see in the outside of it. That's like looking at the cover of a book and seeing the outside of, the, seeing the outside of a book, but if you don't go inside the book, then you'll never know what the book about. So they're not worrying about nobody else but themselves. And I think it's wrong because if they come in the heart of it and they see it, they'd be willing to help. Not an accident, for instance, that we had the regulation in our financial industry that was such a disaster. Uh, the lobbyists of the finance industry amount to five per congressperson. In other words, they pay, pay five people for every congressman to explain to them, persuade them, that they should pass legislation that is favorable to Poor people who are devastated don't have the money. They couldn't hire five per congressman. So the way our, our democracy works, it's an unlevel playing field. The financial sector has acquired enormous power, partly through political contributions, so buying favors, but mostly through ideological control, convincing people that finance is good, more finance is better, and unregulated finance without limit is best. And, and that is really the, the cornerstone of this, what we call in the United States, the Wall Street-Washington corridor. I mean, if people need any proof as to who's controlling Washington, when the bailout came after Lehman Brothers collapsed, 80% of the population was against the bailout. Notwithstanding that, the uh, Congress passed the bailout, just showing, in my view anyway, that it's really under the control of banking interests. It's not a reflection of good democracy, when a company, a group of companies, an industry, says uh, our interests are more important than the national interest. How can that happen? Very easy. That's the role of campaign contributions, lobbying, and America's political structure. Uh, we have a flawed democracy. This is an advanced oligarchy in the sense that uh, its main 
mechanism of control, if you like, is through convincing people that you really need, for example, the six biggest banks in the United States in their particular, in the particular form they exist today with a very light level of regulation. And if you don't have them, if you try to change that, all kinds of awful things will happen. And this is not really blackmail. It sounds like blackmail, but they convince you it's not blackmail. It's just that's the way the world is. There's nothing you can do about it. Oh, my goodness, you just have to cooperate with them. It's very clever. The Fed is essentially the lobbyist for the commercial banking system. When you say you want to turn regulation over to the Fed, you're saying the financial sector and Wall Street should be self-regulated. And uh, Wall Street has veto power over whoever is going to be the head of the Federal Reserve. As long as you give veto power over the regulators to Wall Street, as long as you pick the bank regulators from the banking industry itself, uh, you can forget any thought of uh, calling it regulation. It's deregulation, and to call it regulation instead of deregulation is using Orwellian doublethink. We were at a travel. We were traveling around the world for almost two years. We were all around. We were in Africa, we were in Asia, we were in the Americas, back in Asia. But when we came back, back to this industrialized, campfired world where one screen is catching the other screen, where one light is catching the other light. We were not sure where we were landed. We've been to such a different world and back now we are in the flickering land staring at this Lights and screens and flickering. It's a flickering land. Flimmerland. Excuse me, Mrs. Schwartz. Could you tell us how you feel about oil heat? Oil heat? Oh, 
Oh, well, I think all heat is wonderful. <laughs> See, I'm showering in the delightful hot water. All I want, all I can use. And I know for a fact that only oil heat can give me so much, so fast, and it's so dependable. And I got my dishwasher going, my washer going. Still <laughs> plenty of hot, hot, hot water. Whoops, <laughs> I dropped myself. You know, everybody, all my friends, wouldn't think of buying a house unless it was heated by oil. Oh, everybody thinks it's so dependable. Dependable hot water, and dependable comfortable heating in every room in my house. Oil heat. You can depend on it. We economic hitmen have created the world's first truly global empire, and we've done it primarily without the military. We work many different ways, but perhaps the most common is that we'll take a third world country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. However, the money never actually goes to the country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build infrastructure projects in that country, power plants, highways, industrial parks, things that benefit a few wealthy families in that country as well as our corporations, but don't help the majority of the people at all. They're too poor to buy electricity or drive cars on the highways. They don't have the skills to get jobs in industrial parks, but they're left holding a huge debt. Infrastructure, which has used heavy loans from the World Bank and IMF and made from grants from uh, Western countries. They've all gone into benefiting the elite and the feudal classes. Uh, they have not benefited the people. A lot of money goes to these consultants and companies from the West who charge huge amounts of money and actually the real money on projects and on ordinary people is very limited. The masses have very little already. So those landlords who have the infrastructure and who are going to make money because of the infrastructure that is built through their roads, they will prosper. But the ones who don't have any resources, they've not had jobs, there isn't an economic activity for them in terms of manufacturing goods so they can sell and they can also prosper. When you don't have that, what do they do? They resort to joining the Taliban because they see the enemy coming in and taking away what little bit they have. President Obama, I understand, wants to invest seven and a half billion dollars in Pakistan's infrastructure to alleviate poverty and, you know, take away all the divisions and all the anti-American sentiment over here. Whatever his reasons are, we can do without it. In fact, it's the worst possible thing he can do. This kind of help is actually going to be a hindrance. It's just going to make matters worse. It will bring this contrived war and terror into our rural areas. Like Noxima medicated tea.
take it all. Take it all off. Nothing takes it off like Noxima medicated chain. Charles is with you. I will uh, make sure that you are reunited with your family. I care for you, you know that. I know that. In the corner, Ine stops and says, Thomas. Thomas stops as well. Ine says, Thomas. Where we wanna go, Edgar? Thomas is thinking for a moment and says, I don't know actually. 
a long break, yes it is. If I wouldn't have any time plans...
Hörmaschine. This is Hörmaschine 52. Flickering Lands. Flimmerlands. Hörmaschine today with Thomas und Inge. Adam Curtis, Gillian, Ted and others. Music by M.L. Phillips. Das war die Hörmaschine. This was Hörmaschine 52. Das war die Hörmaschine 52. Flickering Land. 